Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Adrastos Omissi for a conversation about civil wars in the late Western Roman Empire period. Dr. Omissi is a lecturer in Latin literature at University of Glasgow, based in Scotland. He's author of the book, Emperors and Usurpers in the Later Roman Empire, Civil War, Panegyric, and the Construction of Legitimacy, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he's co-editor of the book, Imperial Panegyric from Diocletian to Honorius, which was published by Liverpool University Press. Welcome to call, Adrastos. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. All right, so we are chatting about uh, civil wars in the Roman Empire, the later uh, Western Roman Empire uh, today. Um, throughout Rome's history, there's there's different historical accounts of, let's say, uh, during Sulla's life in, in the, the BC, uh, the Roman Empire was largely built based on a civil civil war um, with uh, Octavian, who becomes Augustus. And, you know, there's Mark Antony in, in that, that period of time, um, uh, right before the 80. Uh, was, there, was there something uh, different in terms of the amount of civil wars that was happening in the later western roman empire period than there was in other times previous in its history yeah i think there absolutely was i mean you're you're right to point out that the empire in a sense emerged from the period of the late republic and the civil wars that occurred then and that i i suspect that when people think about roman civil war it's the late republic Sulla and, and Caesar and, and Mark Antony, as you mentioned, that, that people tend to think of. But actually, the real golden age for um, Roman civil war is the period from, um, let's say, the end of the second century or the beginning of the third century AD up to the fifth century AD. This is the period that we tend to call the later Roman Empire. Um, and that uh, at, at that point, across that period, civil war essentially becomes endemic to the Roman Empire. You're, you're, you're never more than a few years out from your last civil war. You're never more than a few years away from your next civil war. It, it really just does become a fact of life uh, in the later Roman Empire. So, um, so for the conversation, then, you, you mentioned uh, time frames. Uh, for the most part, you suggest we're focusing on third and fourth century in this conversation? Well, that, yeah, that's what my book is. Uh, that's the, the period that my book covers. But as I say, I'm very happy. If you if you want to think in terms of um, sort of big, bigger structural questions, absolutely happy to discuss the fifth as well. Okay. Sure. If we get into the fifth, we'll get into the fifth as well. Um, yeah. So we're coming up. Uh, so we're third third century. Let's 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 start there, um, so that everybody can picture the Roman Empire in their mind. Can you describe what the Roman Empire was demarcated to? in the third century uh, it's, it's, uh, as a as a physical object yes as it were yeah yeah so i mean it it, it was um it was huge it was absolutely huge and it, you know your podcast is is about the mediterranean the mediterranean's at the heart of the empire what was especially unique about the roman empire is it surrounded the mediterranean basin it's the only polity in history to completely enclose the mediterranean basin hmm. um so north to south i mean its northern point uh, had very briefly got up as far as where i am in glasgow but really uh, 
Hadrian's Wall in Northern England. It's Southern Point um, down on the fringes of Sahara in Africa. Uh, and then west to east, you know, at, at its western extreme, um, the, the, the western tip of Spain, at its eastern stream, extreme, uh, stretching as far as modern-day um, uh, Armenia, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the borders of modern-day Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just absolutely huge, absolutely huge. It's, it, just just in, in terms of its sheer land area, one of the largest empires that's ever existed in history. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's start somewhere in the conversation. Um, can you peg a peg a year and uh, uh, who who was ruling at that time as it pertains to a very tumultuous time with uh, civil wars? Well, so a, a lot of my work focuses on the period after two eighty four, and um, so that, that might be a, a good one to think about. And the reason okay. for that, the third century um, was a point at which the empire had just descended into uh, a, a real chaos. Um, and, you know, in a period of, of 50 years, we get about 80 different emperors, maybe as many as 80. Mm. It's hard to know the exact number, actually. Um, and the, the, that chaos was brought to an end across a, the, the, the long reign of an emperor called Diocletian, who came to power in 284. And it was Diocletian and the people that ruled with him, he set up a system of multiple emperorships where uh, there'd be more than one emperor ruling at once. Uh, it was Diocletian that helped to create the thing that we think of as the later Roman Empire, to give, to give the late Roman state its distinct character. And that brought that chaos uh, to a close or to a pause. But as I say, the civil war never went away. It, it, Di Diocletian helped to make the, the, the situation better but he never managed to remove civil war from the system. Where was uh, Diocletian uh, ruling from most of his reign? Where would he uh, consider his capital to be? Oh, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's as part of what makes the later Roman Empire a little bit different from the earlier empire is that there, there isn't an answer to that question. So Diocletian's most important city, um, the city where uh, he, did, he did a lot of building, uh, was a place called Nicomedia uh, in modern day, uh, the, the, the north of modern day Turkey. Um, but actually, the, in the late empire, emperors moved around a very great deal. They, they, they didn't rule from one fixed place. Um, so, for example, very specifically with Diocletian, it's been calculated that on average, he was moving about 10 miles a day. So if you take his journeys across a year, they average out to 10 miles a day. So late Roman emperors moved. Uh, they didn't they didn't stay in one fixed place okay by this point in time was there by the point in time that diocletian is reigning was there a western roman emperor and an eastern roman em emperor not formally no so as i say diocletian is the person to first formalize the idea that there's going to be multiple emperors ruling it had actually been going on for about 100 years before prior to that, but, but, but he sort of formalized that, that arrangement. Um, but again, from a formal standing, um, the empire was never divided. It was always just one thing. Mm. From a practical point of view, from Diocletian's time on, there was usually at least two emperors, a Western and an Eastern, but they notionally were co-rulers of a united empire. It's not until the end of the fourth century that we really see the Western and the Eastern halves going in different directions. And uh, so uh, particularly after the year 395, um, after that point, um, that, that notional division between Eastern and West that 
that is encompassed by an ideology of a united empire, that becomes more and more formalized into two separate but allied empires, the East and the Western Empire. Why do you think with Rome's long history by this point, why do you think Diocletian didn't, didn't spend most of his time fr from a principle type perspective because you mentioned he's if uh, uh probably more so nicomedia than anywhere if we talk about like where he principally spent his time why do you think he didn't spend um principally most of his time in rome ah right yeah um because it was suicide um, mm. the, the lesson of the the lesson of the third century uh, and indeed in some cases in some ways the lesson of the second century ad had been that emperors just could not rule from rome anymore um, the empire was too big. Uh, there were far too many things that would go wrong, in particular with the case of civil war. I mean, there are too many armies with powerful generals. They need oversight. They need, um, they need a strong hand or else they're going to start making their own emperors. Uh, and Rome was simply too far from, um, uh, from the, the, you know, the centers of action within the empire, particularly from the frontiers. So what had made Rome a very promising center of empire in its early days, the fact that it was right there in the heart of the Mediterranean. Actually, by the third, fourth, fifth century, it had become a liability. Rome was too far um, from the frontiers in the north with the um, Germanic peoples of, of Europe and too far from the uh, eastern frontier in, uh, in the Middle East with Rome's great enemy in the third, fourth, fifth century, the, the Sasanian Persians. So emperors had to move around to be near those frontiers and be near the scene of action. Um, in the fourth century, emperors almost never went to Rome. Hmm. Uh, you, could, you could count probably on two hands, not quite count on one hand, but I think you could count on two hands the number of times that an emperor actually visited Rome in the fourth century. Okay. Tell us more than about the civil wars in this period of time that were occurring. It's clearly tumultuous. Can you speak more about some of the, the civil wars? Yeah, well, so um, at one point a long time ago, I sat down um, uh, with a pen and paper and a, and a calculator, and I worked out that in the period from uh, 284 to 425 AD, um, there was a major ongoing civil war in, in roughly one in three of those years. Um, now, okay. obviously, that's, that's taking an average. It wasn't happening. Yeah, you know. understood. One year, one year on, two years off. Um, but so roughly a third of that period, we have uh, major civil wars between different parts of the empire. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But what it comes down to, again, I think, is the size of the empire, mm. uh, is that the, the, the empire was geared up in such a way that the way that you got things done was through emperors. Um, but the trouble was emperors couldn't be anywhere. Uh, emperors couldn't be everywhere. And so what we see happening time and time again is within a particular region, you have a, uh, you have a group of perhaps civil functionaries, but above all, you have armies that feel that their needs are not being attended to. What's the solution to that problem? And the solution that becomes the de facto one is you make a new emperor. You just declare someone else emperor. And the end result of that is always going to be a civil war um, because emperors might rule together in this period but they only rule with people they pick they're not happy uh they're not happy ruling with people that someone else has picked okay did invading forces influence this period of time at all 
It, uh, yeah, it depends on the period you're looking at. Um, they, uh, external invaders had a big influence on the third um, century, uh, and they also had a big influence on the fifth um, century. What's funny about that intermediate period mm. is that actually the borders of the empire were relatively stable, and I think that's part of what creates this, as I referred to earlier, a kind of golden age of civil war, um, is that the the people that the Romans are really fighting with in the 4th century, and I think it's something that's not said enough about the 4th century, the people the Romans are really fighting with is one another. Um, okay. But yeah, on, on either side of that, uh, in both the 3rd and then of course very uh, very notably in the 5th, we have all these barbarian groups that, that come in and, uh, and eventually establish um, successor kingdoms to the Roman Empire. Uh, in the 3rd and the 5th century, certainly, we do see outside forces having a big impact on... Uh, politics and on, on civil war as well. So how long did Diocletian reign for? Well, he's an interesting one as well, because um, he's one of the... Ooh, am I allowed to say he's the only or perhaps one of the only? I think he is. I think I'm right in saying he's the only emperor uh, in Roman history who voluntarily retired. You occasionally get a, people, a couple of people who are forced to retire. Mm -hmm. uh, but he reigned for almost exactly 20 years, uh, and then he retired. And he, um, on his retirement, he promoted his successors to, uh, he, pr he promoted his junior emperors to succeed him. And it seems like maybe what he was trying to do was set up a system whereby this would happen. Emperors would rule for a set period of time, and then promote their subordinates. Again, the attempt here seems to have been to try and regularize the imperial succession of them, make it a bit less chaotic. Yeah, and this episode isn't solely focused on Diocletian, but he's an interesting figure, I think, in this conversation because he reigned so long in a very tumultuous uh, time. So can you speak more about Diocletian then? What do you, what you think his efforts were in trying to stabilize the empire and, and what were some of the big decisions that he made uh, to try to... Uh, placate all the civil wars that were happening. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, it, it's a, it was a very interesting time for the empire. Actually, the, the, um, as I say, Diocletian came to the throne in two eighty four. Um, he stood down in in um, three o five, and the empire changed hugely across that slightly more than twenty year period. Changed hugely. Um. But all those changes that we can see seem to have been aimed at um, uh, expanding central authority. So even things like creating systems of multiple emperorship, uh, Diocletian presided over something that we call the Tetrarchy. Tetrarchy is ruled by four. So Diocletian was one of four emperors that ruled. But even things like that that actually seem uh, decentralizing, what they are is, is expanding the power of the imperial court because now you have four imperial courts and all the changes that we can see are along those lines. It's trying to give the emperor more direct influence within the empire. So there was a massive expansion in the number of provinces, for instance. They were rough, the number of provinces was roughly doubled. This is about collecting more taxation. The army was more or less doubled in size, okay? Um, so a, a whole series of reforms um, designed to extend the reach of the imperial court uh, into further out into the provinces, basically. And uh, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, they were um, 
fiercely unpopular with a lot of people. You know, um, no one likes having their taxes increased. Mm. So the Tetrarchy has come up before on this podcast. Had a very enjoyable conversation with Dr. David Potter of University of Michigan on uh, Constantine's um, accession to becoming Roman emperor. Um, but that episode wasn't focused solely on the Tetrarchy. So we haven't covered the Tetrarchy yet as a as a topic. It's been in the periphery um, on this show. Can you uh, speak more about the like the splitting of the of the empire that decision and what the tetrarchy is and how the different rules worked because there's there's uh principally four um the rules can you explain all that the augustus and the augustus and the, the caesars yeah absolutely and I, I, it is a very interesting question and it's partly interesting because we don't i mean like so many things in the roman world we don't have a constitution for this thing right we don't have um, anything setting out this is how it works mm -hmm. we just have to look at it in operation and then kind of try to work out, okay, what was the system here? And what it, what we seem to be able to deduce from looking at the Tetrarchy uh, is the idea that the, the, the creation of this system where you have four emperors ruling, and those emperors, at least in the case of the, the, the first Tetrarchy that we have, because this is an experiment that doesn't last much longer than the first Tetrarchy, but we assume it was meant to continue. Uh, we have four emperors ruling, and they're not related to one another. They relate to each other by marriage. They have marriage alliances with each other, but they are not familiarly, familiarly related. Mm -hmm. It's unusual. The second thing, as you mentioned, is that there's a clear gradation in... Um, there's, a, there's a kind of hierarchy within the Tetrarchy. So of those four emperors, two of them are Augusti, and that means senior emperors. Augusti, the, 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 obviously the plural of Augustus. Uh, so you have two senior emperors, and they have a, a roughly delineated responsibility for the Western uh, Empire and the Eastern Empire. Then under those two Augusti, you have two Caesars. So uh, that, uh, Caesar becomes uh, a way of de denoting a kind of junior emperor. Uh, and so those two Caesars are kind of the deputies for each of the Western and the Eastern Augusti. And as I mentioned, it, it also seems to have been baked into the system, the idea that what would then happen uh, is eventually the senior Augusti would retire, step back from imperial politics, their Caesars would be promoted, they would become the new Augusti, and then two new individuals would be promoted to become the two new Caesars. And, and that transition happened once at the point when Diocletian retired, and then Constantine messed everything up, so we never get to see if this system would have carried on. Hmm. And so to, um, for certainty then, uh, and, uh, and to clarify the kind of the who and when behind the Tetrarchy, was it Diocletian that created the Tetrarchy? And when is it thought that he created that model of governance? Again, a great question, one that we don't have a, a definite answer okay. to. So Diocletian became emperor in, as I say, uh, 284. Uh, in 285, he made a man called Maximian uh, co-emperor. And for a long time, Diocletian and Maximian just ruled together, the two of them. So from 285 until uh, 293, eight years, they ruled just the two of them. We often refer to that as the diarchy, diarchy ruled by two. And then in 293, suddenly we get these two new men promoted to the rank of Caesar. Uh, and the creation of the Tetrarchy. And it, it's hard to say, was the Tetrarchy always the model that had been had in mind? Or was it mm. something that evolved over time that, that Diocletian and Maximian themselves kind of 
cooked up when they realized, okay, mm. rule by two works well, but rule by four would work better. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it's not easy to, uh, to answer that question. All we can say definitively is that uh, in 293, we get this, um, we get the creation of this unique, nothing like this had ever happened before, this unique uh, system of governance. Did the did one of the two Augustus have superiority in governance over the other Augustus? Yeah, again, this it, it's very technical, but but we think so. Yes. So the, the seniority goes along the lines of who was created emperor first, and within the the first tetrarchy, it's actually fairly easy to see that Diocletian is considered the the senior Augustus because he created everyone else. Everyone the, the the, the, the sort of family tree of the Tetrarchy flows out from Diocletian. Um, in practice, it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so first of all, the, the emperors seem to have been fairly good at keeping their um, zones of influence relatively distinct from one another, perhaps in part to avoid exactly these questions, you know, whose authority trumps whose. Um, but we, you can also see hints of the idea that uh, particularly the Emperor Maximian, the Western Augustus, wasn't terribly happy about being the junior partner in this relationship. And it's, it's very mm. interesting to read the kind of um, propaganda, if we want to use that term, of Maxim, uh, uh, Maximian's court and to look to see if there are hints that actually this is not that healthy relationship and Maximian would like a, 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 a bigger role. That's not actually my view on the situation. I think Maximian and Diocletian got on very well, but certainly lots of people do find that within the um, uh, within Maximian's ideology. Whilst Diocletian is notionally the man in charge, uh, Diocletian's court orators and so uh, Maximian's court orators and so on, they really want to make Maximian out to be the the, the top dog. Okay. Through all this tumult, how was the church in Rome responding? Do we have any, do you have any anecdotal type stories or examples of, of how the church was responding uh, with, with all the changes in, in governance and all the wars that were occurring? This is a really interesting period for the Christian church because this is the, obviously, I'm sure your listeners will be aware, um, particularly as you've had uh, folks on here talking about Constantine before, this is the period at which suddenly the Christian church gets acceptance. Um, it goes from being uh, a, a persecuted religion to suddenly being the official religion. Um, and it's, it's an interesting period for the church because it's clear that that required such a sort of shift of mentality. For a long time, the Roman state was the enemy, right? The, 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 you know, the church defined itself by existing outside the Roman state in, in many ways. Um, but moving to suddenly being part of that state uh, was, I think, a slightly difficult thing for churchmen to get their head around. And actually, at least in terms of the surviving texts we have, um, churchmen tend to be far better at criticizing the state than they do at supporting it. That'll change going into the later period, 5th, 6th, 7th century into the Byzantine world. The, the, the relationship between um, imperial court and Christian church becomes much more um, established and, and worked out. But actually in the 4th century, uh, it, it's not quite clear how 
uh, and at, at fourth and fifth, it's not quite clear how uh, the Christian church quite fits into this um, uh, quite fits into this picture. And I think often the, the church kind of wanted to stay out as much as possible. Um, the Christian church liked imperial patronage, but didn't like imperial problems. So by and large, the church tried to present itself as um, a, an a impartial third party within, within civil war. Okay. Um, if I can accurately say that one of the reasons Diocletian made the Tetrarchy was to calm things in the empire, mm. if you disagree, let, let, you know, let me know. Um, it, was there any other examples after that in this period of emperors that's somewhat noteworthy decisions, somewhat noteworthy decisions that emperors made to try to placate um, things, to calm down the tumultuousness in the empire? I mean, the examples that actually kind of come to mind are more to do with moments when that went wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because one thing, I mean, we, we were talking before we came on, on air about the, the 5th century, and one of the things that's interesting about the 5th century uh, is, is that, particularly for the West Roman Empire, the 5th century seems to be just a string of bad decisions. And as someone who, who works on civil war and who spent a lot of time thinking about the 4th century empire fighting civil wars, I suspect that a lot of the, the, the poor decisions made in the 5th century and the decisions that ultimately led to the disintegration of the West Roman Empire are motivated by the fact that 5th century empire, emperors were still thinking in 4th century terms. They were still thinking in terms of the fact that their most dangerous em, uh, enemies were other emperors. And to a certain extent that's true, but it, it fails to acknowledge the fact that the world was changing and we have all these... Um, uh, non-Roman peoples who have now become really big players in Roman politics, you know, the, things like the Goths, the Vandals. Um, uh, and so, in a sense, my answer to your question is actually to, to think about moments when uh, the 5th century is a moment when those decisions weren't made and a new empire that uh, acknowledged the fact that this was a very changed world wasn't created. Does it, in this period, does the civil wars placate at all? Or does it go right into the um, uh, armies, the, the, the Visigoths and these foreign troops that are, or foreign armies that end up uh, approaching the Western, like Rome? So, so in this period, does is there ever a... a uh, long period of calmness or, or an adequately long period of calmness or does it go right into the end of the western roman empire in the fifth century no it goes right through i mean the only period in which we get the only extended period devoid of civil war uh the only really long stretch uh would probably be the period from 324 to 337 so that's the period when uh, Constantine had gained sole rule of the empire. And as much as anything, I suspect that it's a, it's a slightly similar thing to the reign of Augustus that you mentioned earlier, that we get a period of quiet then because the empire is just spent. Because uh, Constantine has come to um, power over the whole of the empire 
through a series of incredibly bloody civil wars. But no, these aren't, I mean, you know, thinking of the example like the English Civil War and stuff, where there are principles of government, or the American Civil War, where there are principles of government that are being fought over. That's not what's going on. Everyone's agreed on how the empire should be governed. We're going to be governed by a Roman emperor. What they're arguing about is who is going to be Roman emperor. So these are not civil wars that solve problems or that win the arguments. And, and, and that's also part of why they're so constant. You mentioned one thing that may partly answer this question. Constantine was involved in a lot of civil wars. Um, it sounds like probably more early on in his career. Was there anything else about Constantine's reign, do you think, that had uh, there be somewhat calmness for such a long period of time? I think you said 324 to 337, there was some reasonable calmness in, in uh in, in the empire. Anything about how he was uh, governing? I mean, I think he was a very effective ruler um, and he was um, he was a very successful ruler as well. Uh, I've been thinking about him in terms of well, we've been talking, you know, we've been talking about him in terms of his civil wars. Uh, he did also wage almost continuous when he got a moment's peace from fighting other Romans, he waged almost continuous wars across the frontiers against um, Germanic peoples. And at the end of his life, he was preparing a major um, engagement against the, a major invasion of the Persian Empire in the East. Okay. Uh, in, a, in a world as focused on martial success as the, um, uh, as the Roman Empire, this is something that I think uh, did a, 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 a lot of favours for Constantine. Um, he also, of course, is responsible for the creation of Constantinople, which I think is, um, uh, one almost can't underestimate what a wide reaching thing that was for, for the Eastern empire, because along with the creation of, um, uh, Constantinople, he created an Eastern Senate to go, he built this new capital city, Constantinople, and he created an Eastern Senate. I mean, whether Constantine himself intended it to be a Senate to rival Rome, that's an open question. But what he did is he built this huge new elite senatorial uh, class structure into the Eastern Empire. So he also gave the Eastern Empire a heartland uh, that in some senses it had been missing up to then. It's easy to forget that the Eastern Empire, in many ways, the, the much richer, more powerful, more important part of the empire. We tend to look at the focus on the Western, uh, but there's a reason the Eastern Empire was a bit that survived. Hmm. What do you think the long-term impact of all the civil wars in this period had on the history of the Roman Empire? Yeah, well, I suspect it probably played a big role in the downfall of the, of the West Roman Empire, number one. Um, and I, 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 I mean, I, I think it's broadly a hugely negative thing. I mean, just from a, a very simple perspective, I mean... Uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people must have died in these wars uh, across the period of the fourth century and into the fifth. Um, and as I say, they're, they're, not, they're not wars that um, resolved issues. They're ultimately, um, they're ultimately conflicts over a sort of finite body of resources. So I think they had a very negative effect on, on the later empire. They squandered... Um, physical resources, 
they squandered human resources and of course that's a very euphemistic way of saying they caused enormous loss of life and enormous suffering and they also created a, a political culture that was very um paranoid uh and very um very dangerous to be involved in i would not want to be a late roman courtier it's a good way to get your throat cut hmm it was a pleasure to have you on the show today, Adrastos. Is this a subject that you continually work on? Or are you working on something new? Well, I'm actually um, looking to bring my consideration um, into the uh, fifth century as, as uh, you know, what, a lot of what I've been talking about in this chat has been about the fourth century. It's what my book mainly focused on. Um, but I'm currently working on a big uh, mapping project of the Roman Empire that's going to be thinking about the breakup of the, the West Roman Empire. Uh, and so I'd like to, I think the, the considerations that I've had about um, civil war in the fourth century are really important for thinking about what happened in the fifth. So that's, um, that's where my work is going. But yeah, I don't think I'm quite yet, quite yet done with civil war. Okay. Thank you for coming on the show today, Adrastas. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Omissi wrote, he's author of Emperors and Usurpers in the Later Roman Empire, Civil War, Panegyric, and the Construction of Legitimacy, and he's co-editor of the book Imperial Panegyric from Diocletian to Honorius. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Adrastos and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.